This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So about a year ago, something really remarkable happened. And you might remember hearing about this. It was a story about a pod of orcas and one whale in particular. Uh, Is it Taluqua? Talaqua. Talaqua, right. Talaqua, yeah. This is Barbara King. Barbara's a biological anthropologist. For 28 years, I taught at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. And a year ago, Barbara was paying close attention to Talaqua. Yeah, so Talaqua was with her pod, which is the J-Pod, in the Salish Sea, and that's off of British Columbia and Washington State. And we do know that this pod is suffering. Actually, orcas in the entire region are endangered. There's a lot of problems with pollution in the area, and there'd been no baby that had survived in three whole years. So it was a big deal that Talaqua was about to give birth. And so everybody cheered when this daughter was born. But pretty soon after that birth... I'm not sure anybody knows why, but within hours, the baby died. And then Talaqua has the body of her baby on her back. And, you know, in the beginning, it was sort of expected, oh, you know, the mom will carry the baby for a day or two. This is common. And what became profoundly different about this was the length and the extremity of what she did. That is the sound of a female orca carrying her dead calf in the water, keeping it afloat since her baby died a week ago. She carried that baby for a thousand miles. Tahlequah has carried her calf, and the world has been captivated by this vigil. If the baby slipped off into the water, she would retrieve the baby. If she needed to be away from her pod because they were going faster than she could go, she would stay by herself. A mother orca whose calf died after birth is still carrying her baby 17 days later. So the question, of course, became, what is she doing and why is she doing it? So... What do, you, what do you think? As I think of it, this fits a pattern in a certain way where a mother or some other animal simply doesn't walk away or swim away, in this case, from the body. And some people just want to say it's because they're stressed and I would really want to go a different way and say I think we're seeing grief here. So you, you look at this and you say... To me, this is an expression of grief. This is a a parent mourning the loss of its child. Yes, I would say that because we're never going to know to 100% certainty in any given case what an animal is feeling. But I am looking at the visible cues that animals give us. And I think Tahlequah gave us lots of cues that she was very distressed, that this connection was the important thing for her with this individual animal who was no longer breathing. So today, Tahlequah swims on with the J-Pod, but her grief still moves me. Barbara King picks up the idea from the TED stage. And I do believe that grief is the right word to use. I believe that grief is the right word to use for numerous animals who mourn the dead. They may be friends or mates or relatives. Now, for the last seven years, I've been working to document examples of animal grief in birds, in mammals, in domesticated animals, and in wild animals. And I believe in the reality of animal grief. Now, I say it this way because I need to acknowledge to you right up front that not all scientists agree with me. And part of the reason I think is because of what I call the A-word, The A-word is anthropomorphism, and historically, it's been a big deterrent to recognizing animal emotions. 
So anthropomorphism is when we project onto other animals our capacities or our emotions, and we can all probably think of examples of this. Let's say we have a friend who tells us, "My cat understands everything I say," or "My dog, he's so sweet. He ran right across the yard this morning towards a squirrel, and I know he just wants to play." Well, maybe. Or maybe not. I'm skeptical about claims like those. But animal grief is different because we're not trying to read an animal's mind. We're looking at visible cues of behavior and trying to interpret them with some meaning. Now it's true. Scientists often push back at me and they'll say, "Ah, look, the animal might be stressed, or maybe the animal's just confused because his or her routine has been disrupted." But I think that this overworry about anthropomorphism misses a fundamental point, because these visible cues, these behavioral cues, tell us something about an animal's emotional state. We evaluate human grief through language, right? Obviously, with animals, they can't do that, and you can understand why some people might be skeptical of this research. I do understand the pushback that we get. And I think that it's very important to get that pushback and to get that criticism. It's exactly what science is good at. When I get a comment from someone saying, "Tell me the difference between stress and grief in case X or case、mm -hmm. Y, or why do you really think that this isn't an example of anthropomorphism?" I learn from that process. Of really going over the alternative possibilities, but behind all of these questions really lurks the concept of human exceptionalism, because still a lot of scientists would like to think that we are exceptional in our emotional abilities, and I am trying to push back against that and not start from a starting point where certain emotions are uniquely human. If that's your starting point, you're never going to see them in other animals, whether they're present or not. Animals can act in ways that are pretty familiar to us, and for a long time, scientists resisted the urge to anthropomorphize or to look for human qualities in animals. But now, some of the world's most preeminent biologists and researchers are asking questions like: Do animals grieve in ways we can recognize? Do they have consciousness or a comprehensive language or the ability to empathize like us? So today on the show. We're rethinking anthropomorphism and looking at ways that animals may be more like humans than we ever thought before, and how those similarities might help us better understand our own place in the world. And for Barbara King, her own thinking about animals and grief changed when she started researching elephants. Pretty quickly, as I started reading, I was convinced that elephant grief is real. So we know that these are big-brained, highly social mammals. They live in family groups. Elephants are the touchstone species in a certain sense, in that we have peer-reviewed science publications showing that elephants respond around a body with a vigil, with distressed body movement, all sorts of things that fit my definition of grief. You know, Cynthia Moss is a tremendous long-term elephant researcher in Kenya, and she has described elephants crossing a plain or a savanna and diverting towards bones, dried, bleached elephant bones, sitting there in the sun, and a particular elephant spending more time caressing a particular skull. Wow! And she knows from her long-term records who had died there, and she knows that the animal caressing those bones is a relative of that dead individual. That just blows my mind. That's amazing. And I just kept going. I started to expand and broaden the question and say, if elephants grieve, how about our closest living relative, monkeys and apes? That was pretty clearly a yes. But I started asking about animals as wide as farmed animals and companion animals like bunnies and cats and rabbits, and I kept coming up with more and more yeses. So once I started asking and started looking, it became clear to me that there was a whole just the elephants are the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much more to talk about here. So. Will science tell us someday about bereaved bees? Will we hear about frogs who mourn? 
I don't think so, and I think the reason is because animals really need one-to-one close relationships for that to happen. I also know that circumstance matters and personality matters. In any case, animals are not going to grieve exactly like we do. We have human creativity. We paint our grief, dance our grief, write our grief. We also can grieve for people we've never met across space and time. Animals don't grieve exactly like we do, but this doesn't mean that their grief isn't real. It is real, and it's searing, and we can see it if we choose. If it's true that certain species of animals that we are very familiar with experience grief, as this, as our knowledge of these experiences becomes better and clearer, it becomes more challenging to kind of confront the decisions we make as humans. It certainly does. This has become, in recent years, the driving impetus for what I'm doing, because what does this mean for animal-human relationships? What does this mean for the ethics of how we understand these fellow travelers you know, on our planet and how we treat animals, including questions of who we eat? I wrote a whole book about who we eat, and... The extension of my work to farm animals changed my thinking just revolutionarily so and changed what I eat quite a bit as well. It's been very convenient for all of us, and I do include myself, to think of farmed animals ranging from chickens and pigs and cows and ducks as being not so smart and certainly not capable of profound emotion. It's convenient because we want them on our plates. So plant-based eating has become just superbly important to me. I mean, I think to me what's weird about the pushback against anthropomorphism is that if we identify with animals in the same way we identify with other humans, it's inevitably going to create more empathy for animals and other human animals. That is such a wonderful point because... Sometimes I'm asked, you know, why are you agitating for animals when there's so much human suffering in the world? But you're absolutely right, because empathy begets empathy. And when we raise our children to care and empathize with animals and to see their cues of how these animals are thinking and feeling in the world, I think it's only going to multiply upon itself. And Isn't that what it's all about? We really want to see each other for who we are. And what I'm suggesting is that the part of empathy that's so important is to see that their lives matter to them profoundly. They spend their days thinking and feeling, and it's up to us to see that and to take some action when we realize it. That's Barbara King. She's a professor of biological anthropology. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today anthropomorphic, how we relate to animals. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at Greenlight.com NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today anthropomorphic. Ideas about how we interact with animals and how those interactions help us understand the world and our place in it. 
And for our next TED speaker... So I'm Denise Herzing. Animal interactions have been her life's work. I'm the research director of the Wild Dolphin Project, and we work in the Bahamas. I've seen lots of pictures of, of you underwater holding a camera. Um, when you're down there, does it feel like... It's almost like a, I don't know, like a, just a better place to be. I don't, I don't, do, do you ever get that feeling? Well, you know, it's an immersion into a three-dimensional world. You know, the tides and the currents and the salt and the waves. And I mean, that all feeds into your understanding of what their world is like. But usually when I'm down there, I'm like, trying to follow behavior and making sure my camera's on. It's actually mostly work, really. Right. Denise Herzing has been doing that work every summer with the same group of dolphins in the Bahamas. Let's see. I just calculated it recently. For 35 years. Yeah. Like 3,000 encounters in the water with the dolphins. And then each of those encounters is about 20 minutes long. So over 1,000 hours of footage and observational data. So, yeah, it's a lot of data, certainly for dolphins. And the point of all that data, of all that work, is to help Denise answer one question. Do they have a language? And if so, what are they talking about? Here's Denise Herzing on the TED stage. Now, I'm interested in dolphins because of their large brains. And we know they use some of that brain power for just living complicated lives. But what do we really know about dolphin intelligence? Well, we know a few things. We know that their brain-to-body ratio, which is a physical measure of intelligence, is second only to humans. Cognitively, they can understand artificially created languages, and they pass self-awareness tests in mirrors, and in some parts of the world, they use tools, like sponges to hunt fish. Now, dolphins are natural acousticians. They make sounds 10 times as high and hear sounds 10 times as high as we do. But they have other communication signals they use. They have good vision, so they use body postures to communicate. They have taste, not smell. And they have touch. And sound can actually be felt in the water because the acoustic impedance of tissue and water is about the same. So dolphins can buzz and tickle each other at a distance. So decades ago not years ago, (laughs) I set out to find a place in the world where I could observe dolphins underwater and to try to crack the code of their communication system. Well, well, first of all, how how do dolphins communicate to each other? Well, you know, we can actually hear a fair amount. Um, Their whistles are fairly audible to us. They have clicks. They have burst pulses, which are also packets of clicks. So they have all these different cues, and they you know, use body postures in combination with sounds that will basically um, communicate certain things to each other. You know, um, this is total anthropomorphization, um, but uh, like when you think of a, like when you see a dolphin animated or drawn in a kid's book, They seem to be smiling, but we should not interpolate that that means that they're happy all the time, right? Oh, definitely not. Yeah, that (laughs) is just a a physical physical thing that they have going, yeah. How do you respond when other researchers say, you know, push back and say, hey, like, let's not do that. Let's not anthropomorphize these creatures. You know, you just keep doing your work, I think. Uh, I don't even think it's a discussion anymore, honestly. Most of us that work with social mammals, I think, have kind of moved beyond that and just say, well, it's a valuable tool for thinking about how they might think, and, and let's do the work. Is it is it even weird to talk about dolphin language, or, or is, is it – should we be talking about dolphin communication? Yeah, we don't really usually talk about language because we don't know if they have it yet. Um, but thinking out of the box is, you know, it's like intelligence. You know, are there different kinds and types of intelligence? Are there different kinds and types of language? I mean, we know there's tons of kinds of language with humans, right? But yeah. one of the big things about language is that you can communicate about uh, different time and space, right? Are they talking about the food they're chasing? Are they eating or are they talking about, hey, well, let's go to the reef in a couple of days and meet up with this other group? You know, we don't know. And that's where... You know, anthropomorphism can be a tool for thinking about how animals might be thinking. Which brings us back to the Bahamas 
and a pivotal moment in Denise Herzing's years of work with Atlantic-spotted dolphins there. It happened one summer. I guess in the mid-90s. The dolphins did something they had never done with Denise before. We just started noticing the dolphins would just start doing things. And this is completely wild, right? Um, But we knew the individuals. And they would start doing things like mimicking our body posture. In some cases, mimicking like the rhythm of our sounds in the water if we were doing anything vocally. And we just kind of thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to see what we empowered them to communicate back to us? And the key to unlocking that communication turned out to be play. Dolphins, just like humans, love to play games. Mostly with toys, a piece of rope, a bit of seaweed, anything they can pull around in the water. Correct. So what kind of games um, do they like to play? Well, it's mostly called keep away. (laughs) That is, if they get the toy, then the idea is they like to be chased. Um, They like to let you get almost close enough to grab the toy, but then they speed off and that's the game. That's what they play with each other, actually. The only question was how to use that play to crack the code, the code that would unlock the meaning behind the dolphin's noises. Now, one way to crack the code is to interpret these signals and figure out what they mean. But it's a difficult job, and we actually don't have a Rosetta Stone yet. But a second way to crack the code is to develop some technology, an interface to do two-way communication. And that's what we've been trying to do in the Bahamas and in real time. So we built a portable keyboard that we could push through the water, and we uh, labeled four objects they like to play with, the scarf, rope, sargassum, and also had a bow ride, which is a fun activity for a dolphin. And that's the scarf whistle. And these are artificially created whistles. They're outside the dolphin's normal repertoire, um, but they're easily mimicked by the dolphins. And I spent four years with my colleagues Adam Pack and Fabian Delfour working out in the field with this keyboard, using it with each other to do requests for toys while the dolphins were watching. And the dolphins could get in on the game. They could point at the visual object or they could mimic the whistle. Another way to imagine this experiment, Denise says, is think of how you try to teach words to a baby. And you're trying to get them to understand the word milk. So you have a glass of milk and you're going here's some milk, or do you want the milk, or would you like some milk? So we're not really teaching them commands. We're exposing them to the communication system with the hopes that they'll learn to use it to communicate back to us what they want. Okay, so an underwater keyboard, four buttons, each with a different whistle sound for a different toy. So the dolphins were actually doing really cool things, like we would play the computer whistle, say like... For sargassum, which is a piece of seaweed they play with. And the dolphins would immediately tag on another whistle to the end of the computer whistle. So, yeah, the answer to the question, do dolphins have a language, is maybe, kind of. They certainly have a desire to communicate. So now, Denise and her fellow researchers are teaming up with a group of computer scientists to use machine learning to try to parse and analyze those extra whistles and figure out what they might mean. So that's actually what we're going to be doing late this summer. Well, like like when an anthropologist stumbles on a discovery and some ancient tablet, right, um, mm. they can spend a lifetime trying to decipher it and then figure out what those symbols meant. But that's a physical thing that you can look at, right? I mean, you can imagine that this is a version of that, but with increasing computing power, you could potentially imagine a scenario where the the hieroglyphics, so to speak, in in dolphin communication could be decoded. Yeah, well, that's what we're working on. I mean, remember, you know, uh, hieroglyphs is a written language. And that's something that dolphins will never have. At least I can't imagine it. But, you know, maybe they have an oral history that they produce like humans did, right, before we even had writing. Um, But yeah, I have no doubt that machine learning is really going to help us parse out the information. So if if you or I went to Europe 20 years ago, we would have a little phrase book and that might be all we had. And now you can just speak into Google Translate and then it will po- and then you can play it and it will play it for somebody. You can imagine in 20 or 30 years from now traveling to Asia and speaking in real time and having like a headset around your head that 
was a simultaneous translator, an AI translator that w- would enable you to have a really serious and deep conversation with somebody in their language. Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's probably coming in shorter than 20 years, I would bet. Yeah, right. And you know, what's 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 really interesting is if you look at how other animals communicate with each other, and they do, right? We're way behind the times because we don't have to communicate with animals, right? But There are a lot of birds that already know the alarm calls of their neighboring species because it helps them survive. So nature already communicates in many ways just without us in the loop. So we probably should get in the loop. That's Denise Herzing. She's the research director of the Wild Dolphin Project. Her full talk is at TED.com. On the show today, anthropomorphic. What we can learn about ourselves by observing animals, including our closest relatives. So uh, what's what's the story about Amos? Yeah, Amos, he was um, a handsome male. (laughs) A handsome chimpanzee male. We distinguish these things in chimpanzees also. He was a handsome male. He He was beautiful and very intimidating physically. But he rarely used his um, superior force. This is Franz de Waal. He's a primatologist at Emory University. And Amos, he was an alpha male. Yeah, Amos sort of interesting story because he was a very popular alpha male. And alpha males become popular if they keep the peace and, and keep everybody happy and, and bring harmony to the group. That's, that's the, one, the ones that they really like in chimpanzee society. But then Amos got sick. Yeah, uh, I think liver complications. Of course, that sort of thing can happen. But what's significant, says Franz, when he got sick and, is and what happened um, next. The, the, the group cared for him. So, so there were females who would bring him wood wool and, and put it behind his back while he was panting very heavily and, and sweating a lot. He, he was extremely sick at that point. And so I, I, I felt, well, this is, this is a nice way to go for a male in the sense mm. that he, he dies very popular, whereas um, many alpha males, that's not the case. I mean, it would suggest that he was a good leader, that he was actually, yeah. right, that he actually cultivated leadership qualities that, that made him liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, we need to make a distinction between dominance and leadership. So there are males who can be the dominant force, but those males, very often, if they're alpha, they end poorly in the sense that they get kicked out or they get killed sometimes in the wild. There's reports of that. And then you have the males who have leadership qualities who break up fights, they defend the underdog, they groom, they console. If you have that kind of alpha male, um, then the group really rallies behind them. And they can sometimes stay in power for a long time. Now, for a lot of us, this may not sound like what an alpha male is supposed to be. If you go to Amazon and, you, and you, you type in alpha male, you get all these business books about how to be an alpha male. Gentlemen, in this world, there are two types of men. A male that, that women flock to. You know what women like? They like men. How to be a male. You cannot be dominant if you're emotional. That everyone respects. Think of a pack leader. And what they basically describe in these books is bullies. Alphas are strong, betas are weak. And I really don't like that kind of description because um, I'm actually partly responsible for the term alpha male. Franz de Waal continues his idea from the TED stage. Because I wrote this book, Chimpanzee Politics, which was recommended by Newt Gingrich to freshman congressmen. I don't know what good it did, but he recommended that book to them. And after that, the term alpha male became very popular. But I think it is used in in a mischaracterization. It's used in a very superficial way uh, that doesn't relate to what a real alpha male is. And so I'm here to explain what that is. The term itself goes back actually much further, goes back to the 40s and 50s, uh, research on wolves. And and basically the definition is very simple. The the highest ranking male is the alpha male. The highest ranking female is the alpha female. Every primate group has one alpha male, one alpha female. And um, I will explain how that goes. All right, so say you've got a a group of 25 to 40 chimpanzees, right? What is the process of becoming alpha? Uh, How does it it unfold? So you have usually an established alpha male who needs to be unseated. 
And uh, that's very difficult, especially if that alpha male is popular, because then the females support him and he has usually a few male supporters as well. So a, a younger male who, usually it's a younger male who wants to take his position, will first of all um, do a lot of indirect challenges. He will, he will beat up a female that is a favorite of that alpha male, um, but far away from him to see what happens. Or he will bang on the doors or throw around rocks and he's sort of testing that alpha male. And if the alpha male doesn't react, then he's going to do it closer to him. And now if the alpha male keeps uh, unresponsive, so to speak, then uh, the younger male is going to seek support and he's going to groom other males to see if they are willing to support him. Because it's a very risky thing to start challenging an alpha male. But other things that you need to do is you need to be generous. So, for example, males who go on a campaign to dethrone the leader, which made them take two or three months, where they're testing all the coalitions in the group, they also become extremely generous. They share food very easily with everyone. Or they start to tickle the babies of the females. They're normally male chimpanzees, not particularly interested in infants, but uh, when they're campaigning like that, they get very interested in infants and they tickle them and they, they try to curry favor with the females. <laughs> so in, in humans, of course, I'm always intrigued by these men who are candidates and hold babies up like this. This is not particularly something that babies like. But okay, at this point in, in your TED Talk, uh, Franz, you, you're actually uh, showing a slide of a, of a politician holding a, a baby over his head. Yeah, I think it's in order to demonstrate, look at me, I can hold a baby without dropping it, you know, I'm a great alpha male, uh, you should vote for me. So, I mean, in the case of chimpanzees, do they change their behavior once they, like, win over the group and become the alpha? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a big difference between the climb to the top and being at the top. Because now, all of a sudden, this male needs to rule over the group, needs to break up fights between others, uh, needs to be there when there is a dispute and, and everyone is looking at him to see what, what he does. And, and the best alpha males, I think, are impartial. This is a male who stops a fight between two females. Two females on the left and the right have been screaming and yelling at each other over food. Uh, and so he stops the fight between them and stands between them like this. And it's very interesting to me that alpha males, when they do this, they become impartial. They don't support their mom or their best buddy or... No, no, they, they stop fights and they come up for the underdog in general. And, and this makes them extremely popular in the group because they provide security for the lowest-ranking members of the group. And so they, they become impartial, which is an unusual condition for a chimpanzee to be in because they're usually very fond of their friends and so on. And these alpha males who are good at this, uh, they can be very effective at keeping the peace in the group. Coming up, how even the best alpha males struggle to stay on top. On the show today, Anthropomorphic. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines understands the support small businesses need. Knowing that no business is the same, knowing that we're all impacted by things that are beyond our control, like catastrophes, and hearing and listening and understanding what's important to a business owner, understanding how much is truly affordable and what makes sense at that moment. Because a three-year psychiatrist is going to be very different than a 20-year doctor. And a two-year sign owner is going to be very different than a one-month restaurant owner who's just trying to figure out what's going to be on the menu next month. Those are the things that I think are extremely important that come to my experience as a small business owner. It's me figuring out how to help the people that I live with, how to help the people that I work with, how to help the people that I volunteer with. Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on today's show, anthropomorphic. And we were just hearing from primatologist Franz de Waal about chimpanzees and the power struggle to become and to remain the alpha male. I mean, it doesn't seem like an alpha male could ever be, you know, relaxed or completely comfortable. Eventually, you know, someone will come after the leader, like someone will try to overthrow them, even if the alpha male is, is good. Yeah, so I've seen alpha males who 
thought, I'm sure, that they were secure in their role, and all of a sudden someone challenges them and doesn't doesn't step out of the way when they walk up to them and things like that, hmm. uh, and and then they panic and then they they start screaming. Sometimes they throw a tantrum like a, like a baby chimp when they realize there's this other male who doesn't take me seriously anymore, and then they 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 really uh, are fall apart sometimes. Do do we know is there is there an average length at which uh, an alpha male retains his position? Yeah, I would say um, typically in a group like uh, for 3 or 4 years an, an alpha male stays in power. There are males who have there's one report in the wild for example of an alpha male who stayed in power for 12 years. Wow. He had a whole bribery system down. He he would. He was not a particularly good hunter, but he would confiscate the f- the meat hunted by other males and then distributed him himself. <laughs> he was very politically astute, and he would um, make sure that his supporters, which he had quite a few, that his supporters were kept happy. I think we humans have a tendency to at least want to know whether whether the lives and the organization and the organizing principles of primates. Um, are similar to our own. I mean, we have a very similar system and mm-hmm. structure. Yeah, yeah. So, so you shouldn't be surprised by that. That's <laughs> we we are very closely related to <laughs> yeah. chimpanzees. Yeah. And so, uh, first of all, we are a hierarchical species. And if you walk into a room, or let's say a boardroom of a company, you can see within a second what approximately the hierarchy is is among those people. So we are a very hierarchical species, and I think we have derived all these tendencies from other primates. It's not something that we invented. We have surrounded them with more symbolism. We are a very symbolic system. We have certain dresses and certain thrones and certain rituals that reinforce that hierarchy. So, so we have a more complex and elaborate cultural environment that we create around the hierarchy, uh, but the basic principles are not so different, I think. So the message I want to leave you with is that if you are looking at men in our society who are the boss of, let's say, a family or a business or Washington or whatever, and you call them alpha male, you should not insult chimpanzees by using the wrong label. (laughs) You should not call a bully an alpha male. Someone who's, who's big and strong and intimidates and insults everyone is not necessarily an alpha male. An alpha male has all sorts of qualities. And I have seen bully alpha males in chimpanzees. They do occur. But most of the ones that, are, that we have have leadership capacities and, and are integrated in their community. And like Amos at the end, they are loved and respected. And so it's a very different situation than you may think. And I thank you. That's Franz de Waal. He's a biologist and primatologist at Emory University. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. So have you ever looked at your pet and wished you could just read their minds? Wondered if they really love you? And wished you understood what they were thinking? Well, it's hard to know what our own spouses are thinking sometimes. I mean, not knowing what they're thinking is not exactly a a totally different experience from being around humans. This is ecologist Carl Safina. Carl studies our human relationship with the natural world. And he says wondering if your dog loves you is the wrong question to ask. It is the wrong question. It's a question that we all ask, and it's a question that we all would like answered. But the question of do you love me is more about my insecurity about our relationship. It's not really a way that I can get to know you. So my question for animals became, who are you? And who are you opens a door. It's really a different kind of question. It's a different kind of perspective. You open yourself to see who they are. That's really very different than do you love me. You know, the interest is an interest in life itself. It's, it's who we are here with, who are they. Therefore, it's also who are we and what is the nature of life. You know, all of those things are part of watching animals. Here's more from Carl Zafina on the TED stage. There are capacities of the human mind that we tend to think are capacities 
only of the human mind. But is that true? What are other beings doing with those brains? What are they thinking and feeling? Is there a way to know? I think there are several ways in. We can look at evolution and we can watch what they do. First thing to remember is our brain is inherited. A neuron, a nerve cell, looks the same in a crayfish, a bird, or you. What does that say about the minds of crayfish? Well, it turns out that if you give a crayfish a lot of little tiny electric shocks every time it tries to come out of its burrow, it will develop anxiety. If you give the crayfish the same drug used to treat anxiety disorder in humans, it relaxes and comes out and explores. Octopuses use tools as well as do most apes, and they recognize human faces. Killer whales teach, and killer whales share food. People who seem to know only one thing about animal behavior know that you must never attribute human thoughts and emotions to other species. Well, I think that's silly, because attributing human thoughts and emotions to other species is the best first guess about what they're doing and how they're feeling. Because their brains are basically the same as ours, they have the same structures, the same hormones that create mood and motivation in us are in those brains as well. We see helping where help is needed. We see curiosity in the young. We see the bonds of family connections. We recognize affection. And then we ask, are they conscious? We can think about human consciousness, right, as like a, a, a movie in our, in our mind. Like we are all experiencing our own movies. We are the star of our own movie. And that's kind of a simplistic way to describe consciousness, which is this really complex thing. We, we still don't have a full understanding of what human consciousness actually is, what animates us. Why am I saying these words? What's generating that, you know? And I wonder, is there a version that probably exists in, in a variety of animal species? Well, you know, first of all, a lot of the words we use in, in this topic around animals and consciousness and experience mean very different things to different people. Mm. So they need to be defined for the purposes of our conversation. You know, we started out by saying, do dogs love us? Well, what do humans mean by the word love? Yeah. You could say, I love my children. You could also say, I love ice cream. It's the same word. You mean different things by it. So if we're going to talk about consciousness, we have to decide what the definition for our purposes is. Neurologically speaking, consciousness is the thing that feels like something. Yeah. It's a felt experience. That's consciousness. And almost certainly across a huge spectrum of animals, the experience of consciousness differs. But it probably differs in degree rather than in kind. <laughs> probably everything that happens in our mind, there's a version of that happens in a non-human mind. Yeah, I mean... We have this natural tendency to see the world and the animal world through the human prism because it sort of allows us to create touch points, you know, maybe maybe ways that we relate to other animal species. But, but what, what you're saying is that that's the wrong way to look at it. We actually have to turn it, re reverse it, start from the other side. I, I think both can be helpful, but mostly people forget to do the second part of it and we do have to just look at it from above. Yeah. If we're going to talk about love, what do we mean by love? And then based on that definition of what we're going to mean by it, what evidence is there for love in a person, in a dog, in a jellyfish, in a bird? And you will see in all of these cases, you will see a range of mental and emotional abilities. And love is one of those things that can be measured in so many different ways, right? Like like Barbara King was just talking about grief, right? And 
that is a way to measure love. Um, and we know certainly that many animals grieve. You know, they grieve when they lose members of their pod or their group or, or, or their kin. Right, right. And she says that you can see grief in a creature if after the death of an individual that they knew, they change their behavior. They may be searching for them, calling for them. They may eat less. They may spend a lot less time looking for food for a while. And then eventually, just as humans do, they have to get back to living. We, we had a couple of ducks. I mean, people don't normally think that ducks experience grief, but we had a couple of ducks, a mated pair, and when the male got sick and died rather suddenly over the period of just about a day and a half, the female spent weeks going to all the places in the yard where they might have been together, where they used to like to hang out, and she would call and call and call and call. Mm. Clearly she missed him, and clearly she was looking for him. The things that make us human are not the things that we think make us human. What makes us human is that of all these things that our minds and their minds have, we are the most extreme. We are the most compassionate, most violent, most creative, and most destructive animal that has ever been on this planet. And we are all of those things all jumbled up together. But love is not the thing that makes us human. We're not the only ones who care about our mates. We're not the only ones who care about our children. It's not special to us. You are a conservationist, and you believe, and many people believe, that we humans have a moral responsibility to treat animals in a much different way than we currently treat them. We eat them, we kill them and hunt them and destroy their habitats. But it seems to me that there's, a, there's also an intellectual argument for asking the question, who are you? Which is, look, if you're not going to accept the moral logic here, understand that these are complex beings that deserve your attention and deserve your respect. Is that... Is that f- ah, yes, yeah. but, but that is the moral logic. There are complex beings that deserve our respect. Many of them have a felt experience. For many of them, that felt experience is very vivid, and they form relationships with bonds, emotional bonds, and that should make us treat them in a way that is ethical. The other thing about that is there's a lot of predation in the natural world. All animals eat something. At the very least, they destroy complex plants. And many animals eat other animals. So I don't even think that killing something is necessarily the worst or most bizarre thing in the world. But destroying the ability of the planet to support life, which is what we actually are doing, is a very bizarre thing. And there's no wisdom tradition in any philosophy or any religion that has ever said that it's okay to ruin the world. I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to ask you this question because I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I want to hear the answer, but given what you've witnessed in the oceans and on land and watching the disappearance of animal habitats, um, are we in trouble? Are we going to be able to turn this around? Or do you think we humans are headed to a point of no return? Uh, Well, I I think the main problem is that humans will exist without a lot of the beauty in the world. And we will give ourselves a diminished existence by not valuing beauty above everything. Because really what makes life worth living is the different things we find beautiful, whether it's love for members of our family or uh, the beauty of the sky or the beauty of seeing other living things or, or our gardens or whatever. Without beauty, existence is an incredibly grim prospect to consider. Mm. I think the problem for all those other species and all, all that other life is that, for the most part, we don't really need them to exist. 
You know, there there are no longer any elephants living in North America in the wild. There used to be back in the Pleistocene, but um, we do fine without wild elephants. The whole world could do fine without wild elephants. It would just be a really sad, sad thing to lose these literally miraculous beings. Multiply that by millions of species, all the warblers that migrate through in the springtime that most people aren't even aware of, and they, they've already missed that beauty. My biggest nightmare is that I would wake up one day and humans would be the only thing left in the world. And that's really the danger. If we desperately understood how we have an ethical responsibility not to ruin what has taken millions of years to come about, these things that have vivid lives and experiences and, and emotional relationships, if we understood all of that, we would act differently than we're acting. That's ecologist Carl Zafina. He's written the book Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. You can find his full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Anthropomorphic, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Brent Bachman. Our intern is Emmanuel Johnson. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, and Anna Phelan. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 